APA's Craig Newman performing a special rendition of the Promoter 101 hit theme song, Tongue Bath. Podcast, get your podcast here. Steiny and Luke have reunited for a once-in-a-lifetime spectacular reunion pop-up show. One night only. Available here and now. Promoter 101 is back. One show only. So the rumors are true. This is the Promoter 101 pop-up holiday special. I am Dan Steinberg, and join with me now my partner in crime, Mr. W. Luke Pierce. Dan, my friend, it's very good to be listening to your beautiful voice and to be speaking again on Promoter 101. To everyone listening, we have missed you just so much, and we had to come back for just one more. I'm not going to lie. It feels pretty good to be back here talking to everybody, preparing for a holiday weekend here in the States. And boy, oh boy, do we have a good one in store for you today. On our featured interview for this podcast, we have the man that literally wrote the book on music, the author of All You Need to Know About the Music Business, music attorney Donald S. Passman is going to be joining us later for our featured interview. Also, the Peloton artist founders, Steve Martin, Andy Summers, and Wayne Forte, Walk us through the first year of the agency and its future. This was just a good time reunion hang, really, Luke. Absolutely. These guys are legends individually in their own right. They've come together to make a very new and exciting company. And they sat down and told us the whole story, Dan. Excited to share that with everybody later today. We're also going to have a discussion with Nashville's own, like we get to claim him now, Brooklyn Bulls' Kirk Peterson's dropping by to talk about the state of affairs, Brooklyn Bull and Dayglo Ventures. And Luke, we brought back three questions just for this episode. Well, especially for this episode, right? Because it's a one of one. But Superfly's own Ben Pikowski right here on Promoter 101. The Promoter 101 pop-up reunion episode starts right now. And now, industry affirmations of the return to live music. Hi, it's Jamie Loeb, and I work for Nederlander Concerts. When everything shut down and we were without in-person live music, I got to the point where I almost forgot how important it is. Live music feeds the soul in a way that really can't be replicated any other way. And I'm just so thankful to be able to feed the soul again, others as well as mine. 
Well, there are over 225 past episodes of the Promoter 101 podcast available for your education and enjoyment and anytime you want at Promoter101.com. That's right. And if you want to talk to us online, come join the conversation on Twitter. This show is at Promoter101. I'm at W. Luke Pierce, and Dan is at The Jew. Over on Instagram, this show is at Promoter 101 Be sure to follow. And Dan's at Dan Presents, and I'm at W. Luke Pierce. I'm at Connor Phoenix Yo on Instagram, and feel free to hit us up anytime with your ideas and questions at Steiny at Promoter101.net. I love that Connor's back. Don't you love that Connor's back, Luke? I do love that Connor's back. It's good to hear his dulcet tones and wonderful voice. Oh, yeah. You just can't wait to see what Easter eggs he's going to hide in this episode. How's this for an Easter egg? This is a clip taken completely out of context from an interview recorded many moons ago that sums up quite nicely the struggles of shaking the rust off after going a year without recording an episode of Promoter 101. Enjoy. But Connor will fix all of this. That's the genius of Connor. Uh, poor Connor. Poor Connor. Actually, I think Connor would really appreciate Most of his interview is going to end up on the cutting room floor. On the Connor room floor. <laughs> Connor room floor, right. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Michael Belkin. I work with Live Nation from Cleveland, Ohio. COVID reminded me of the power of live music and how it could bring people together and what music could do for the community. I was lucky on a personal level because I came out of the pandemic with my first show was Foo Fighters in Cincinnati and my next show was James Taylor in Cleveland. And so on a personal level, I was like, amped up to 10 right out of the box because those are like two of my all-time five favorite artists. And so it reminded me of how, you know, the fans that come to all the shows that we produce, how they feel each and every time. And then my next show close to that was the Green Day Fallout Boy, the Hella Mega Show in Green Day was so powerful and I hadn't seen them in so long. And it, and it just kind of reaffirmed what live music means. And then before I jump, two recent examples of what music can do for a community. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the Chris Stapleton show in Lexington at Kroger Field, first show ever there at that venue. And he gave all of his money and it was a massive amount of money to local charitable organizations. He's from that area. And then this past weekend, I was also at the Who show in Cincinnati, their first time performing there since 1979. And there was an incident at the arena. They also contribute a significant, a very significant sum of money back to the community. And so those events were like, they really gave me goosebumps in that these bands were giving back to their fans, giving back to their city, that particular city. And again, just reaffirmed what live music can do, literally what live music can do for people. So instead of doing news this week, we thought it's been a year. We should just catch up and let everybody know what's been going on over the last year with us. Connor, let's start with you. What's been keeping you busy? Uh, You know, mostly just chilling and playing a lot of music. My band is dropping an album soon, so we've been hashing out all the final details of everything that goes along with that and just playing a whole bunch of shows, running around all over the place. We're playing a couple really cool festivals this year. Like we just played Beltane down in Oregon a few weeks ago, doing Summer Meltdown up here in Washington coming up, then headed back down to Oregon for Reevolution. So it's been good. Definitely staying busy. All right. Well, what's the name of the band so people can check it out? 
Name of the band is Citrus. That's C-Y-T-R-U-S. Definitely check us out on Spotify. Like I said, we're dropping an album soon, so that's going to be awesome. We're an eight-piece psychedelic power funk ensemble. Very deep grooves, very high energy, very fun. All right. And how can people like get in touch with you guys if they want to book a gig or sign you to a record deal? Best way to get a hold of us is through our website, citrusband.com. That's C-Y-T-R-U-S band.com. We're also super active on Instagram. There's a lot of good stuff over there, and there's links to that and all of our other socials on our website as well. All inquiries are welcome. Luke, I know you've been catching up many, many, many golf cart hours over the time of the pandemic through now. What's been keeping you busy? Work has certainly been busy during this past year, Dan. I think we're full bore back touring at 2019 volumes, if not beyond them, which has been travel for me. It's been rehiring some people for crews for me. It's been a lot of work in general. I don't think I've ever experienced the volume that we're experiencing right now in, in 2022, which is weird to say because we're still very much in this pandemic. But Work has been good. If nothing, it's been too busy at at times, which is something that I've been trying to juggle personally on that side of things. I think a lot of people are feeling that way. I've been trying to strike a balance and continue to enjoy uh, all the things I was able to enjoy during the pandemic from seeing family a little bit more often to playing golf more often. So I've been lucky in the past year to have traveled around to a bunch of places Played Band and Dunes out in Oregon, some courses up in Wisconsin. I played in the Desert Charity Classic with many of our friends in the music business down in Palm Springs this past May. It's a Ryder Cup style event. It takes place to benefit Sweet Relief, where we raised $76,000 for Sweet Relief and was part of David Levine's winning golf team that year. Uh, that was back in May. Got to play Pebble Beach with the Kelly Barrick tournament as well, too, and see some old friends uh, along that. Plus, as much time as I can spend in my house in Nashville, which I've really, really been enjoying settling into. So it's been busy in many ways. A lot of travel, some personal, some for work. Excited to be back for things and where they're at and excited to be out on the road seeing some old friends that I haven't seen in two and a half years. Lots and lots of time on the golf course. (laughs) A lot of time on the golf course, for sure. I remember we were doing, I think it was the first book club on the clubhouse and you were doing it from the golf course while you were in the middle of a round. Brian Traeger. That's true. And and of all people, I will be headed to Bally Hack with Mr. Brian Traeger and Matthew Shea, Matt Shea, my good buddy and fellow manager, and Mike Luganville from Straight No Chaser this weekend. So if anyone's in the Roanoke area while you're listening to this podcast, let me know. Come out and tee it up with us. Speaking of Clubhouse, book club that we did, that was March 2021, I believe. Pretty peak Clubhouse. And I don't know about you, Dan, but I haven't really been messing around on Clubhouse for the better part of seven or eight months at this point. So we asked some of our friends the same question because it was a popular scene for just a second. And now, maybe not so much. Hi, this is Kevin Lyman. Jason Bernstein. Jim Rungi. Belly Lefko. Andrea Johnson. Since COVID's been over, have you logged on to Clubhouse at all? I have not. No. (laughs) Not even once. What a great idea we all thought it was. It doesn't seem to have like followed it into the real world, for me at least at all. I think it could be great appointment listening. Like at this time, jump on Clubhouse and you can hear this, but I think it's hard to find a, a pickup game as you will. I agree. Starting one up and expecting people to show up is like... Yeah, we're, we're too busy for that. It's, it's more of those, one of those things that catch me at the right moment and I'll be there. I haven't been back on the Clubhouse app. Like I did it with you and I did it by myself a couple of times and I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was a blast. But once it was over, it seemed like it was over. 
You didn't really use Clubhouse much, did you? I did a little bit, but I mean, it seems like that's dead, isn't it? That, yeah, that's that was my follow-up question. Since COVID's been over, have you been on Clubhouse at all? Fuck no. <laughs> Sorry, is that a good answer? <laughs> Perfect answer. Kind of exactly what we're going for. Industry affirmations of the return to live music. Hi, this is Jake Sufnerowski from the world-famous Rocks Off Concert Cruise Series, celebrating our 20th anniversary in New York City. The thing I'm most thankful for for shows finally coming back is the chance to haggle with agents and fight with managers about marketing and promotion and sweat ticket counts and lose sleep over guarantees and really get out there on the water with fans. Honestly, I'm most excited about getting back out there and seeing people rock out. I was just on a couple of boats this past weekend and I hadn't been on any since 2019. I kind of forgot the feeling of actually putting on a show, how important it is to my soul, really, to make that magic happen. On this very special Memorial Day weekend holiday reunion special on Promoter 101, we are thrilled to be joined by the Paladin Artist founders. Steve Martin, Annie Summers, and Wayne Forte sat down with Dan and I to walk us through the first year of their agency and what's in store for its future. Thank you so much for making time, guys. Thank you. There's a pandemic off. We didn't have anything else to do. That's Sorry. right. Yeah. We were just on the phone bullshitting, and then we thought of this idea. <laughs> All right. So where did it come from? I mean, obviously, Steve and Andy were at APA before COVID, and then Wayne has obviously had his own agency for years, Entourage. Where did the concept come up of the new agency? Through the pandemic? Want me to, want me to go first? Well, yeah, sure. We, Andy and I have known each other for a long, long time, since he was at William Morris, I was a promoter. Wayne was a, an agent that I revered. He was—he and Frank Barcelona were very similar to me when I was a little cub agent down in the village and was always very gracious to me years ago in the 80s. And we we all talked about doing something similar, you know, doing something together at various points. And then the pandemic just seemed to be the right opportunity to form, you know, what we're aspiring to be is a boutique, you know, really highly qualified people. Somebody asked me what the agency was like, and I said, it's a combination of SEAL Team 6 meets the Bad News Bears. And, that, and that's what we're <laughs> Nice. I, I wasn't joking when I said it. I mean, literally, Steve and I were on the phone just, you know, shooting the shit. You know, we we're talking about this thing and that thing, and he had this idea with Andy, and Andy and I have known each other almost forever. We worked at William Morris together before I left there. And as Steve mentioned, he and I spoke, you know, back in the 80s. And we talked a number of times in the 90s and early 2000s about doing something together, which never really, never really came to fruition. So the pandemic, to me, honestly, just seemed like the right time. It was like, OK, it's the end of the world anyway. So fuck <laughs> it. <laughs> Let's just do this. <laughs> Now, at one point, Andy Summers was on your desk when you guys were at William Morris together. Yeah. Well, he wasn't actually on my desk, but he was the next desk over. But Andy and I did things together. I He was an assistant. He wasn't really supposed to be booking, but I knew that he was. So I gave him more things to book. And Wayne would then be in the power position of putting me on other agents' desks. And when I'd go, why? He'd go, so you learn what not to do. <laughs> An important thing to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then I, I left that company shortly after Wayne did. Lulled around for a while and then became an independent and started an agency. So that's something that all three of us have done separately and it's fun to do it together. 
it started as the three of you, but it's grown into many more people now. You've got a lot of agents working under you. I mean, for a boutique agency, you're one of the bigger boutique agencies based on roster and based on how many agents you guys have. Who else is with you at this moment? We have 4,000 employees worldwide. But it's like with Seth Rathaport and you've got Kath with you. What's the full team? The full team. Uh, let's see. Winston Simone the third. I'm just looking around. She's in the office. Seth Rathaport, Kath Buckle. Wayne has Nathaniel, Julia, Sarah Schlieber. Magali Barone is doing some theater stuff that we're talking about in an interesting way. She's with Cami right now. Katie Gamelli, who's in a, a wonderfully ambitious, bright, young theater lit agent. And it's, a, it's an area that we're quite keen being in. Developing property. She has, I think, five or six Tony-nominated clients right now. Yeah. Uh, China Chuan, who's our anchor. She's the, the den mom out in California. And also Steve Ferguson. And I was just getting to the immutable Steve Ferguson. Yes. Who's around somewhere, too. Or maybe just left. I mean, there was a lot of agencies that were formed coming out of COVID as people were furloughed and leaving agencies and starting their own thing. And there are certainly a lot of them. But roster wise, you guys have certainly got to be one of the biggest. I mean, when you look at that Dream Theater and Tedeschi Trucks and Social Distortion, King Crimson, like the, the list goes on and on and on. But it, it's a heavy hitting list of artists. Possibly. You're very kind. You know, we, we wish everybody well. We think everybody should succeed. I'm thrilled for... Mint and Arrival and all the other startups, there is room for everybody. And we encourage them and hope they do well. Right, so let's talk about the future. Is there is there global domination coming? Are you guys going to Europe and South America? What's Is it a global thing? Is it North America? What's the focus? The focus is the world. And some artists you're already booking globally, right? When you got, you do TTV for pretty much the whole world, right? Yeah, Joe yeah, Cetrani, yeah. TTV. I mean, a number of my clients that do either for the world or most of the world. So I have a worldview anyway. And yeah, so, you know, we have a worldview. We're not looking for world domination necessarily. Yeah. As Steve said, there's, you know, plenty of room and there's a lot of people out there. We just want to do for our artists what's best for them. And if we think it's best for them that we represent them, you know, in other territories, then we'll we'll do that. I mean, it really is a kind of a boutique philosophy. We're not for everybody and everybody isn't for us. It just kind of we want the best and the brightest in their field. We don't ever want to represent 4000 punk rock bands. We have a couple that are amazing, ranging from social distortion and other stuff on Andy's roster to one of the bright lights right now called Surfboard. And, you know, focusing on interesting young things. The classic artists that we have are incredible. We're very grateful to represent them, but also what's as exciting, if not more, the stuff that we're developing, whether it's Sammy Ray and Friends, Surfboard, Black Bach. Uh, we just have a lot of really interesting developing projects, which was kind of how it happened at the agency group. Classic Rock paid the bills while guys like Dave Kaplan came in with a little band called The White Stripes or Ken Vermeglish came in with a club band called Creed and went from there. I want to take a step back and talk about something a little bit different and maybe not about what you're working on, but why you, you took this approach and why you made this move together. And been lucky enough to hear, you know, each of you individually and, and speak a lot with Andy and Wayne at Aspen and other places too, to kind of hear about your friendship and the personal reasons for making a move like this. I think there's a lot of financial reasons for music departments to find themselves away from major agencies financially. There's incentive on that side of it, but how much of the, the the start of this agency, the impetus of this was wanting to work with people that you enjoyed and was about 
bettering the quality of your life and your personal relationships with the people that you were coming to work with on a daily basis? That's a very articulate question, Luke. I give you a lot of credit for that. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, we almost, let me put it this way, it's it's crucial to, uh, to the three of us and to all of us here. We almost, and we seriously debated this for a hot minute, calling the company No Assholes Allowed. But we couldn't quite get our heads around how to make the acronym out of it without people thinking it was a narcotics anonymous something <laughs> about it. Uh, it really is important. It's key. Not only, you know, that you share a vision with people that, you know, your cohorts have integrity and in everything we do, you know, we practice those principles in all our affairs up and down, whether it's a $200 club act or an arena show to represent your artists and also be fair. I mean, I, I don't consider promoters adversaries. We're partners and stuff. We want people to do well yeah, all around, all around. And frankly, the secret to my success is always surrounding myself with people smarter than I am. And that's why Wayne and Andy and a lot of the other people are here. It was totally a personal thing for me. I, you know, I didn't need to do this. I didn't, you know, there was no financial reason to do it. Honestly, you know, I, I'm doing well for myself. I live comfortably. You know, how much more does anyone need anyway? I mean, the pandemic really shed the light on all of that. It's like, how much do you fucking need, really, you know, to just to be comfortable and happy? As I said, Andy and I have talked about doing, well, we did work together way back, talked about it along the way. Steve and I have talked about it a number of times. So it just seemed right. And as I said, it really was the pandemic. It was kind of like, you know what, let's just do this, you know, and let's try to have a, you know, try to have atmosphere in the office together. We just moved in really about a month ago yeah. into this space. It's great space. We had a couple of people who uh, just came in this week to the space because for one reason or another, they had COVID, you know, family traveling, stuff, yeah. family stuff, you know, so they, they, you know, we've been Zooming and we've been working together, you know, like that. We've been meeting in here and then Zooming with the people that are in, with the people that aren't in. Uh, but a couple of people that hadn't been in and I got a comment today saying, wow, it's great space. It's a great vibe. And that was all kind of part of it. You know, getting the right space, getting the right feeling. You want to come to work. You want to work together. You want to do things together. And there's a number of projects that are going on that I have my sort of have my fingers in and I'm not really involved. And in I'm just here to help if you like, you know, if they like. And I'm willing to give my input if they want it. If they don't, that's fine. Andy, you've not only changed jobs and built a company over COVID, but you moved to Colorado after being in LA for decades. So really you've changed your entire life coming out of COVID. Well, you know, the pandemic came along and it was time to be independent again. With these guys, it was even the best. I mean, my favorite times doing what I do, which is no different than what I've done for years, is representing artists. And at this stage with everyone based in New York, you know, for the most part, except for China and myself in California, I just, you know, said to myself, I'm going to work out of a room in the house. I'm working remote. I can make remote Colorado instead of New York. And uh, I mean, see everybody. And that's what I did. You know what? But it's good. My happiest times doing what I've done has always been either when I was independent or even the earlier days when I joined the agency group. It was a, a great independent agency. You know, and other than that, you know, right now is a good time. I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic. We're still adjusting to a marketplace that is not the same marketplace it used to be. And it's a good challenge as well. But, you know, once again, you work with people you like. I want to have a good time while I do this because I think we're all really good at what we do. It's got to be a good time while you do it. 
So the three of you have been at major agencies, indies. You guys have, between the three of you guys, pretty much been in every scenario. Usually one of you or two of you have been there at the same time together over the years. You guys know how, what you like from big agencies, what you like from small agencies. I'm guessing you guys have brought all those things together to hopefully build what you guys would consume to be the best possible experience as a new company. Yeah, that's Dan, that's basically it. Very I mean, good. So what Andy just said, you know, we're about representing our clients anyway. That's what we do ultimately. You know, and we have the same philosophy with our clients as well as we do individual personally, if you like. And so that was one of the things that, you know, made makes a lot of sense as well, you know, Represent the clients as best as you can do. Then the next thing is, how can I do it in the most comfortable and fun environment? I could do it from home. I could do it in an office on my own, or I could do it with some people I like to be with. So what's the choice? So the, the two choices were, well, I spent two years doing it at home. I've been doing it alone for a long time. Not that I didn't have a staff, but I mean, you know, being, being the principal in the company. And I've had the experience of being at two or three major, three major agencies, actually. So this is kind of the best of all worlds, just as you just said, you know, we get the opportunity to have, uh, you know, people available that we can work with and, and coordinate things and, and, you know, bounce ideas off of and, you know, work together to build things. We can still maintain the relationship and, and re represent our artists, which to me is the most important. I've always been an artist oriented agent. And then, you know, at the same time, build a new company. It just seemed to me like a good idea. Why not? Now, Absolute smiling there. <laughs> I, I, I am. Uh, for pretty much all of you, this isn't even your second rodeo. This is your third or fourth rodeo in terms of building out a, uh, a music business or a music department or, or a major, you know, agency. We yeah. could show, so, we, Luke, we can show you a whole stack of business cards over here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can actually show you five different ICM ones from different addresses with new logos. And then they got a new logo and it just turned out to be Helvetica. <laughs> <laughs> and what they well, spent I, for I, Helvetica must have been a fortune. I, I, yeah, I'm, exactly. sure that, I'm sure the 50 grand that they charged for the Helvetica in the very shape of the logo, <laughs> well worth it. Uh, but I, I was going to say this is, you know, third, fourth rodeo from some of you. I mean, this has been multiple companies that you've built, how has pandemic aside and, and what we just talked about, the personal motivations behind this, how has this one been different? Has it been easier, more challenging? And what are you taking from those previous experiences, biggest lessons or the biggest, uh, you know, guideposts to make this Paladin artist a, a new success? Ask us in a year. The story's still being told, my friend. You yeah. know, we're we're just starting the book right now to a large extent. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, before, you know, the, the year, let's say 11 months prior to this or 10 months prior to this, it was just a Zoom relationship, really. You know, we were doing everything on Zoom. I mean, it was interesting to start off because it was like, OK, here we are. And it's like Zoom and you haven't even met the people. I mean, I knew most of the people anyway, but. You know, we hadn't all been in one room. In fact, we have still not all been in one room. Yeah. Okay. Even to, to this point. So as Steve says, we're just, you know, we're not even, we're like in the forward of the book. We're That's not even right. chapter one. Yet. <laughs> uh, but the reality is this, okay. We bring everything that we've done individually into this, you know, new relationship in this new organization. And whether it's major agencies or independent agencies or working with others or building something else, you know, that that got to a certain point, you know, that maybe got to a big point 
And, you know, now starting something new, there's, there's a lot that we bring in. I can't really list it all for you, but my point is, is you say it's like third or fourth rodeo. You're right, third, fourth, fifth rodeo. But <clears throat> there's a lot of experience here because there's experiences in almost all the facets, you know, working on your own, working, you know, with a small business, working in a major agency, you know, working in multiple major agencies, working in a corporate major agency, working in an independent major agency. I mean, I guess we've pretty much covered the gamut. I don't know if there's anything we haven't done as a group. Yeah, no, what we do is is still the same. It's just there's nobody around to annoy any of us. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's, that's a good point, Andy. That's the thing, I guess. That's what we bring to the table. No yeah. assholes allowed. <laughs> and, and I'm just, re I'm really glad that we have this New York office and every, I, everybody's coming in. I mean, if I miss anything, I do miss that kind of camaraderie, um, being here alone. But I, it would have been that way. It would have just been me in China and California anyway. So I guess I got to come to New York soon. Yep. Yeah. I don't have shows there till the fall, but we'll look at the Yankees schedule. Yeah, I was going to say Yankee game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Come on in. What's nice is having entertainment, not show related. Yeah, having the accumulation of experience that we have, which you know, is pretty vast when you look at how long we've been doing it and the situations we've all been in that were crazy situations with clients, promoters, whatever they are, and being able to pass that along when a young age and one of our associates comes in and go, you know, I don't know what to do about this. I go, oh yeah, I went there through that four times in the last 20 years and being able to be of service really to your associates and help them out. You know, that's really satisfying. How did you guys come to the name Paladin? Well, we went to 40 names. <laughs> I mean, just getting the three of you guys to agree on anything. I've been in the room when we were all trying to figure out dinner. Paladin was probably the easiest thing. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't go through the 40 names. Yeah, I, did, yeah. I came in a little bit late. But when they mentioned we got this, this, or Paladin, I went, that's it. Paladin, I'm in. It's, it's very true, actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was Steve, Steve, you came up with it. Well, I always like the symbology of it. Yeah. And what's interesting is that, generally speaking, Luke and Connor, had you ever heard of the term before? My reference to it is like a, a fictional medieval book. Like, like, like it's like yeah. sure, there is yeah. that definition. If you're generally speaking, but if you're a guy over 60, and that's why I asked the two of you, it, it has a certain context. <laughs> and because well, there was a television show called Have Gun Will Travel, and the character of that was named Paladin. And he was basically a guy that did good deeds and helped people in trouble. The origin of the word comes from that the paladin were the, basically the knights of the round table for King Charlemagne and who helped the helpless, which is what we do with promoters, really. <laughs> 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 it, it, was to help, it was to help people and be of service to people and protect it. There's another one saying a trusted military leader. Uh, so it's a it's a good cause. That's what it is. But if you're under 60, you don't know the context of the TV show whatsoever, unless you play Dungeons and Dragons, interestingly enough, which I didn't know when we picked the name, that it's a big deal in that game. I just appreciate that you lumped Connor and I in the under 60 crowd and you left Dan out. Of <laughs> I'm an old soul. He is. I was just going to say that, Dan. You're right. Yes. So, Luke, if you're interested, if you're interested, go on to YouTube and check the TV show out. It'll be interesting.
Before yeah. we let you guys go, what is the future of Paladin? What is to come? <laughs> Integrity with our bands, growing new bands and servicing the fabulous clients that we already have. Yeah. And, and bringing in new, new interesting agents. Yeah, bringing in, we, we want to bring in some new people. You know, we, we, we invite, you know, we invite people to join that are, you know, again, top, you know, top of their game, so to speak, in whatever level they're at and that are, that have integrity and uh, want to participate in a group setting. You know, they want to be involved with a, with a company where, where they can still, hold, you know, direct their clients. Cause we don't, you know, we don't deal on the um, territorial basis, right? So we're not looking for people to come in and just be territorial bookers necessarily people with clients that want to come in, take care of the clients, book their clients, grow their clients, get involved in some projects. You know, we have the, we have the other parts of the world to look at over the future. You know, we're right operating in North America, you know, as, a, as a company, worldwide. North America, South America, I, I deal, you pointed out, Dan, with, you know, with yeah. most of my clients globally, but, you know, on, a, on an overall basis, um, as a company right now, we still have that to get into, but all in due time. There's a lot of time. There's no, uh, there's no real timetable. Like, you know, we're not in a corporate scenario or setting where we have to, you know, deliver this by the end of the year. Hit the quarterly <laughs> numbers. And we don't have to hit the quarterly numbers, exactly. I mean, everybody knows you guys have got the legendary acts like the Pennywises and the Steve Hackett's and the Porcupine Tree reunion tour. But what are some of the new acts that Paladin's involved with that people should be checking out that are listening to the podcast? Uh, you can take those, or I can... yeah, go. Uh, the one I mentioned earlier, Surfboard. And if you think I'm mispronouncing that, it's S-U-R-F-B-O-R-T. Uh, the best way I can describe him is Danny Miller, who's the lead singer, is just an absolute star. It's kind of Joan Jett with the Ramones behind her. Linda Perry, who's been a recent friend, is a force of nature as the manager. The band came out of South by Southwest. It's funny, I didn't know South by Southwest was going to be re relevant anymore, and I really had questions about it. Uh, but Linda was the one that flagged it and said, no, 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 we want to go over and take over. And they did, I don't know, 10 shows. They were playing everywhere and came out, again, in the context for what it's worth, Rolling Stone, one of the best 20 things to come out of South by. The band is just really making progress by leaps and bounds. Uh, Sammy Ray and Friends, which was on the cover of Polestar a month or two ago. Yeah. Seth Rappaport's client is really transitioning into those two to 3,000 seaters. And it's the kind of artists like a Tedeschi Trucks or an Avid Brothers that once they reach a place, they're never going down. It, it's only going to go up. Super talented group. Black Bach, who's a youngish in his early 30s, neoclassical piano player out of Detroit, Young black guy, tatted up. He's the least likely guy you could think. Sit behind a piano and just devastate you with the quality of his playing and his imagination. They're just a brilliant player. They have like four or five. Yam House, one of Sarah Schliebert's clients, was on NBC with the, what the hell was the name of that show? It was the American version of Eurovision. That seemed ill-conceived. Oh, yeah. Do you remember what that was? It was just on, or maybe it's still on. Michael Bolton, they were doing it by states. Michael Bolton was representing Connecticut. Jewel was representing Alaska. And then you had bands you never heard of, like Yam House representing other states. American Song Contest? Maybe, yeah. yeah it made be, such yeah. an impact yeah. that nobody could think of the fucking show. <laughs> 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 on, on NBC, no less. Uh, Winston Simone, who's one of our young, ambitious people, which I was going to say before, we, we want young, ambitious people. We can teach you the entertainment business and the music business. It's not that hard. 
some exceptionally dumb people that have been very successful in it. But Winston came in with a, a magician, and he's now, we're producing, co-producing with Arnie Granite and a couple other people, the, our first off-Broadway show presented by David Blaine in the fall. Winston knew nothing about producing an off-Broadway show. I said, well, great, you get the chance to learn now. <laughs> and we just announced it today, it'll be opening in September. So there's a lot of fun things that are missing at least three or four. I know. What's the name of the show? Uh, Asi Wagada. Where is it? His name A S I W I N D. Asi Wind. It, it's Asi Wind presented by David Blaine. I thought you guys were bringing Arnie Granite to do magic on Off Broadway. Just Arnie himself. He does magic all the time, Arnie Granite. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a literal and figurative statement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but Winston, for instance, you know, the, the being on uh, on the subject of Winston Simone. So he's got a couple of other interesting things. Yeah. He, he brought uh, Nick Walenda. Do you know who Nick yeah. Walenda is? Marvelous Walenda. Flying Luendas. Yep. He brought Nick Luenda in as a client. And we're, we're looking to do some, like, real events with him. You know, he does these weekend events that are like carnivals, you know, daredevil stuff. And then he's got, obviously, the walks and his famous walks, infamous walks. Uh, things like that, you know, he, yeah. he's just, he's very, he's very aggressive and energetic and he comes in with all kinds of ideas. Yeah. We love that. And so that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. We love that. Awesome. We can't thank you enough for taking time and talking to us the first year off and running and obviously upwards and onwards. Paladin artist, the founders right here, Steve Martin, Andy Summers, Wayne Forte, right here on Promoter 101. Thank you guys. Thanks guys. So great to have that iconic team of Paladin right here on Promoter 101. I gotta tell you, Luke, I don't know which one of them I just hate disappointing more. Anytime any of those guys sell you a show, you just wanna make the play for all three of them. Andy's so amazing with his acts and how cool they are. Steve has got those epic acts and Wayne, Wayne just has those career artists that everybody just loves. It just doesn't get any better than Tedeschi Trucks, really. You just wanna make it happen for all those guys. So great that they're all coming together for one team and thrilled to have Paladin Artist right here on Promoter 101. Tweets of the week. Man, it would not be Promoter 101 without some tweets. So I don't know if this is tweets of the year or tweets of the week or how we're measuring time at all anymore, but there's of course a lot of things going on in Stani's mind and I wanna talk about them. And I wanna start with this. Always love when someone says, at this level. Sets a tone for them saying, I'm a big deal, you know? At this level. At my level. Fuck you. How about this one, Dan? Success in business comes down to reconciliation of all the numbers. Just amazes me how few people take the time to check the math of others. It's a lot of blind trust. And I don't trust anybody in the dark. Dan, I feel like this is kind of a familiar one, because I know you've talked a lot about it. But how about this tweet? I'm always shocked at the number of people that did not understand we work in a service industry. Yeah, it's like we're here to support the artists, not to tell them our troubles. We're here to help them. Remember that. Help them. Help the artists. Greed is not a new thing, but it breaks my heart every time I see an act take the money over the right play. Always shocked by the cash grab. I guess I should know better by now, huh, Luke? Maybe, Dan. Here's another one that you might know better about. Note to self, when multiplier and bandwidth are your first thoughts, you're no longer a punk rock kid. Yeah, guilty. When an agent or manager asks for a call, then go missing in action. Luke, have you ever heard of something like this happening? 
I don't ask for phone calls. I just typically make them. So yeah, I think I missed a call with you last week that an agent friend of ours had set up for all of us. But uh, I think the golf course might have been calling. Fair enough. There really seems to be a lack of Jewish country music performers. I think I missed my calling, don't you? I think so, Dan. I think there's a market to be had. And that'll do it for Tweets of the Week. Keep up with Dan and all of his thoughts at The Jew on Twitter. Brian Penix with Vector Management. I'm most thankful about feeling the energy that happens at live concerts again. To see the crowds feed off the music and then the artists feed off the energy of the crowd and watch that go back and forth. It's just an amazing experience and it gives me goosebumps every time. And I miss that feeling so much. I'm very grateful it's back because I was bored as hell watching live streams. Thomas Cousins, Ineffable Music Group. I'm most thankful for 9 a.m. emails asking why the wire payment for last night's settlement hasn't hit yet. Andrea Johnson, ICM Partners. Commissions and drink tickets. No, no. Obviously, human-to-human interaction, which will never, ever be replaced by Zoom. The end. I'm Dan Smalls from DSP Shows in Ithaca, New York. I'm most happy about my greens fees going down, but in all honesty... I'm actually most happy that um, I get to work with the wonderful staff that we have every day. And more importantly, that we get to go back to doing shows, which for me means standing on the stage, watching the show come up and the artists and the fans interact. You know, that's the moment that makes it all worthwhile. And I think when we came back to doing shows, I learned very quickly that was the moment that mattered to me. And that's what we missed the most. It's a reunion episode, and so we're able to pick and choose through some of our favorite things for this podcast. One of them is one of our favorite segments. We call it Three Questions. Sit down with somebody, ask them three questions. They ask us three questions. Oh, yeah. Wow. It has been a while. (laughs) Uh, I was like, that's right. I have to answer these things. Take two. Let's try that again. Today, we're happy to be joined by Superfly's Ben Bukowski. Ben, you've jumped around jobs a little bit since I talked to you last You were working at Mac, and now you've jumped over to Festival Curator and Creative Space Event Promoter. How is that working out? Where are you at now, and how's that going? I am at Superfly. Everything's going great over here. We're looking forward to Outside Lands in August, and excited to be back on the podcast and for there to be a reunion episode like this. Well, it's a dream come true for so many of us. (laughs) What do you have in store for me and Luke today? So my first question, I'm curious what kind of volume you're seeing on legacy artists versus newer artists in relation to COVID surges. Are you seeing, you know, any hesitation from older concert goers based on case numbers in certain markets? Or are you seeing just the general enthusiasm towards getting back out there across the board? Look, it's been a roller coaster on sales, right? It depends on how heavy the cases are, but it seems like across the U.S., most Americans have decided to live their life and come back to shows. Some of them wearing masks, some of them not, but everybody in their own form of comfortability. And people have seemingly, for the most part, eased back into coming shows. And we're seeing sales that are up to the 2019 numbers and better in some cases. But clearly, some of the older acts have had a little bit of a different curve to the sales than the younger acts. And the GA ballrooms versus the seated shows have definitely had a different vibe. Drop counts are really rising across the board, but the A artists, the Tiffany level artists are selling strong no matter what. But some of the acts that you see every year that you know are coming back, people are hanging back a little bit. So if you're 
third or fourth tier artist, you're definitely having a greater struggle of getting people away from the movie theaters and away from the Netflix and the couch to come see your show. So I think that's the bigger issue is on the smaller level where sales have always been harder to sell, have just become that much harder to sell at this point. Question number two, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the continued development of the NFT ecosystem, especially as it pertains to the future of ticketing. Now, I'm going to leave this mostly for Luke, but let me say that I think it's great in a commemorative scenario. There are things like my ticket stub from seeing Dream Theater last week means something emotionally to me, but may not be something emotional to someone that wasn't at the show or may not be into Dream Theater, right? So as far as a commodity or equity, it really does live more with that person that has that connection to that show and that vibe. But there certainly seems to be a space that's opening up in the market, but I think we've seen it work better in art and we've seen it work better in certain prints and what have you than in music so far. But it seems like different acts are trying different things. I think record labels are going to figure out with artists the best way to monetize NFTs for the live space experience. But so far, no one has really nailed it as far as I can tell. Luke, what do you think is the best place for NFTs in the future of the music industry? I'm certainly not the most educated person on NFTs. I've done a few of them. I've certainly bought and traded in this space, but in terms of managers operating in Web3, it's not something that I traffic in too much, but of course, pay enough attention about the space just to make sure that we're staying out in trends. And I think when it comes down to ticketing, NFT is really an extension of already existing narrative towards digital tickets. And it's just a fancy way to kind of repackage an important idea for the business, which is the means really to eliminate fake tickets, you know, reduce the role of scalpers in the secondary market and make sure that money and revenue meets the hands of the creators and the artists that are generating it. And I think there's a lot of powerful implications of moving towards NFTs and and ticketing simply for those reasons. And I think that's why you're seeing companies like Crypto.com come into the space and say that they are going to run ticketing for AEG venues and be in this space. That the blockchain technology that's powering their their exchanges are going to be applied into the ticketing space. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. From an artist's perspective, I, I am really measured in my expectation for what the size of this overall space will be. Is it going to be groundbreaking revenue numbers? I don't think so. I think that We've definitely seen a cooling of the NFT space in the last six months to begin with. But I think something that's very easy to mint and systemize like NFTs and ticketing certainly could be something that exists in the long tail of this movement and this narrative that we're seeing in the Web3 space. And third and final question. I'm curious, you know, what show are you most excited to see this summer as a spectator? I just saw The Who in Cincinnati doing their first play there since 79. And I've been looking forward to that since pre-COVID that they announced they were going to go back and try and get some closure in Cincinnati after that. Not only historic, but horrific experience that they had there with the loss of so many lives. So that was emotional and really important as a Who fan to be there. As far as the summer, I, I haven't been too focused on any one event. I'm really looking forward to Desky Trucks playing on the West Coast this summer in the Amps. That's a new world for them on this side of the country. They normally play here in the winter, so them playing here in summer, it'll be so cool to finally see them outside. That seems to be the one that I've really got my head wrapped around, and then I'm starting to think about some of the big fall stuff. But the Avets are playing the West Coast finally this summer, which I'm really looking forward to. 
but yeah, that, that who show had been like the big show I had been really excited about for a long time. Luke, do you have a favorite show that you're, you're looking forward to this summer besides home free in every market? Yeah. Yeah. I will be seeing home free in a good number of markets this summer. I'm excited. They're doing some great festivals heading to Alaska. There's a few great trips I'm excited about with those guys. I'm just excited about all the new music and production they're bringing in on a week in a week out basis. I've got a lot of clients. I've got Gaelic Storm now uh, out doing Summerfest and a bunch of Irish festivals this summer. I've got Brass Against out there doing Glastonbury and just finished a run with Tool. I've got Lucky Chops out there in Holland at Brass Woods and announcing a European tour later for this fall. So my clients are staying busy and working and I'm excited for everything that they're doing. As just a fan, I mean, I actually, I think I've gotten more tickets in my Ticketmaster wallet now than I probably ever have in my life. A little bit of everything there. You know, there's a lot of great music that comes through Nashville. Lucky to be about uh, an hour away from the Cumberland Caverns, a great venue that's actually underground. They've got an awesome lineup of music coming through there, so I'm sure that it's not going to be the last time that I visit that venue sometime this summer. But in my Ticketmaster wallet, I've got everything from comedy with John Mulaney coming to the Ryman later in the fall. I've got tickets for Spoon. I'm not even really a Spoon guy. I don't know how I got roped into that. But I really do love new EP they dropped this year and have really been listening to a lot of it. So I'm getting taken to my first Spoon show uh, in September at the Ryman. You know, just a, a smattering of some shows. I'm sure I will get out and shake Dan down for some Tedeschi truck tickets later this fall. Excited about a lot of music, some comedy, some podcasts, a little bit of everything. What about you, Ben? Is there a show that you're looking forward to? Tough for me. I mean, I'm always excited to get back in Golden Gate Park and be in that atmosphere for Outside Lands. Springsteen finally putting up dates for summer 2023 has me already planning my entire calendar around that. Beyond that, there seems like there's almost too much to go around. I'm really excited that Rainbow Kitten Surprise is getting back out there on the road. I'm excited that OAR and Dispatch are out there touring together. Barty Strange is a smaller, more up-and-coming artist who's about to put on an album and a tour who I want to see. So there's almost too much out there to even handle. you got The Who coming to MSG. You've got the Red Hot Chili Peppers out on that tour. Dead & Co. coming to City Field again. So I'm just going to see how many days of the week I can fill making it after shows and start there. Awesome. We couldn't bring the podcast back for this one-time surprise episode without bringing back three questions. So I appreciate you making time and playing the game with us. Of course. Thank you, guys. Everyone have a great weekend out there. Ben is a super fan of Promoter 101, so we're thrilled to watch his career over the past few years and to have him right back here for three questions. Hi, this is Elliot Lefko, and I work for AEG Concerts. A lot of changes going on for me during uh, COVID. I uh, moved back to Toronto from Los Angeles after being in L.A. for about 18 years uh, with my family my wife, my son, my dog, uh, having a good time in uh, Toronto. But I have to say, like, I really love what I do. I uh, love the people I work with and for. I love the bands that I work with and the venues. It's just so special when, I, when I'm doing a gig. I feel like everything's good again, like all the confusion, all the craziness, everything kind of lines up. All the flags are flying in, in the right direction. I'm there with the bands and they have so much respect for me. I have respect for them. People ask me questions. I have the answers. I feel like when I was growing up, when I was in school, high school, college, I never did well with any of that stuff. I never really fit in. All of a sudden, once I started doing gigs, everything was just like perfect. It was just, this was the thing that I was meant to be. And, and I feel really fortunate that it's happening again. And uh, last night I was doing this gig in San Francisco with Sigur Ross, great band. And uh, backstage, there was this woman there working for the venue, really taking care of everybody. And when the show was over, 
I was talking to her and Danny Bell and Danny said, oh, her favorite band is Creed. And it's like, great. Like music is for everybody. And you like Sigaras, you like Tyler, the creator, you like the dead. She likes Creed and it brings her joy. And we bring joy to people. Like I'm telling you, when we do these gigs, everyone's having a good time. You're walking around, you're looking at the people having a good time. And you were the person who made it happen. For me, it just it's just like a great feeling, and I'm I'm happy that I'm I'm doing that again. Frank Wing, Reliant Talent Agency. For me, the only appropriate answer, you know, that truly and equally gives us all a sincere moment to be thankful for, you know, is the word opportunity. I mean, I know it's a simple word, but it encompasses all that is necessary to breathe life into all of us as humans. You know, being absent of opportunity is basically an individual or person without purpose, and purpose is the sole reason for which something is done for which something exists. So imagine waking up for the first time in one's life, you know, without the opportunity to exist. Worst feeling in the world I've ever had in my life. So yeah, I'm, I'm eternally thankful and grateful for the opportunity to exist again. I'm Matt Berenger with the Pabst Theater Group in Milwaukee. I am most thankful for the fans. One of the reasons why I got started in this in the first place was the joy of seeing people enjoy a concert or enjoy a comedy show. I uh, see great live entertainment. I couldn't be happier seeing people coming back and experiencing that same kind of euphoria that we saw before the pandemic and that we were uh, desperately missing uh, when we were all locked at home. So I, I would say for sure, I'm thankful for the return of the fans. My name is Rick Hansen, and I work for the Historic Theater Group in Minneapolis. I am so appreciative of being in a venue and having the excitement of the lights go down before the band comes out. It's always been one of my favorite feelings in the world before a show happens and the excitement and everyone goes nuts. And to be able to come back and do all that and see that and create it at our venues or go to other venues to see shows has been one of my favorite things coming back and what I miss the most. I'm also very just grateful for the community in the music industry, especially being able to act to stuff like Aspen Live and going to those conferences and seeing your friends that you didn't see for two years. And now you can do business with them again and keep it going from where it left off two years ago. So I'm very, very thankful that that came back. And yeah, I think those are two of my biggest ones. Um, I mean, everything else is kind of, we're going back, we're back to shows. It's the grind. It's fun. Sometimes it's not fun, but we're back. Restrictions are getting lifted and it, it's it's working out and we're getting lots of people through our doors and it's great. But that was the same as it was before, but it's great to be back. But those two things I would say I have to miss, just the feelings of being in shows, that's something that I won't forget. It's something that's gonna stick with me for something I'm forever grateful for. Up next, we sit down with Brooklyn Bulls, Kurt Peterson for a discussion on the state of the industry. You're a new guy here to Nashville. You've been here, what, three years now? Uh, actually, it's only been about a year and a half. I came mid-pandemic, wow. something that I actually talked about just prior to the pandemic as a potential good move for the company, for myself, for my family with Mr. Shapiro back in February of 2020 when we did not know it was coming. But, you know, after about four months in New York City during the pandemic, it seemed like a good move for a variety of reasons. But yeah, it's just been a, it seems like a longer than that, but we moved here in September of 2020. You've got this amazing timing, right? Because Nashville's supposed to open the moment the pandemic hits, scratches what was going to be an amazing month of celebration to come to Nashville and hits right at the second you guys are opening. And while that time is down, you guys have had to figure out how to not only re-engineer what is a Vegas club, a Brooklyn club, 
a Nashville club that hadn't quite opened yet, but was on the verge. And you guys develop Philadelphia in the downtime too. So coming out of COVID, what's running the gauntlet like as a business manager of live venues across the country? It's got to be a challenge like no other. Yeah, I mean, the timing was was wild. I mean, we were set to open the room March 13th. 2020. And as of the morning of the 11th, we thought we were still opening and everyone had plans to come down from New York and kind of know what happened next. Not to regurgitate something that a lot of the industry knows about, but, you know, they just went through that period of uncertainty, rescheduling, postponing, sort of an endless cycle for the first couple of months. We had to furlough and, and let go of some really talented and, and valuable people. You know, in Nashville in particular, with all the musicians that lived here, we did our best to, to pivot into uh, the live stream world and developed our fans. Finger in the dam, but it was a good opportunity for us to, for our production staff in particular, to really kind of hone the room and be ready for when we did actually open up 16 months later in, in July of, of 21. We opened up our New York rooms a couple uh, months later, including the Capitol and the Broken Bull New York. But a lot, a lot of long philosophical discussions, both internally and with agents and managers, and just trying to figure out, you know, what was next. Coming out of the pandemic, as we all know, we're dealing with inflation right now. We're dealing with gas prices, make it really difficult for the artists to be out on the road. And our costs have gone up. We had to pay rents. We had to pay insurance policies. We had to pay any number of expenses throughout that process. And you know, honestly, we're just thrilled to be back open and providing work for artists and for our staff and to be back into the throat. What, if any, lessons did you find yourselves learning during that time when the doors were first opening in Nashville and we were starting to do live streams in Brooklyn and in Vegas that are carrying over today? Did you learn anything about fans, the way that people are consuming music? Are you applying any of the things that you were doing during that time to what you're doing now with bodies back in the venue? Well, part of the reason that we were able to pivot quickly into those rooms was because they're already equipped with static cameras and servers and mixing boards. Even prior to the pandemic, a big part of even just being clubs, we had closed circuit TVs on our screens. We tried to stream prior to the pandemic. We felt like there was an opportunity there to grow that part of the business. I don't think we ever wanted it to be exclusive. And at the end of the day, we all know that we're still a live company and that's our bread and butter, but there is an opportunity coming out of the pandemic, I think, for people to generate you know, alternate revenue streams. You know, during that time, we worked to deal with Twitch. Like I said before, we really develop our fans streaming platform and we're continuing to do that, both free sponsored streams as well as paid streams. At the end of the day, again, we're still a live business at the core, but to be able to offer another revenue stream as everybody's trying to claw back from that time away, it certainly is valuable for artists as well as for our venues. Now that word streaming doesn't get tossed around nearly as much as it did during the shutdown period. How much of an impact does streaming have coming out of COVID? Is that still a thing? Um, like I said, I mean, it's still a thing in that we we're still running some initiatives. We we're working with Twitch. Uh, we have a Capital One deal where we're doing free streams for artists and we're paying them thousands of dollars for free streams. And so it's not insignificant for them. Obviously, you know, it has to be a certain type of artist. I think most engagement for these free streams are they're popular because most people can't watch a two-hour stream. They can definitely watch 20, 30 minutes. And at the same time, you know, the jam band world has always resonated whether it's archived video or live. And so that's something we were capitalizing on prior to the pandemic and we're continuing to kind of push through it. Our main focus is really just trying to maximize the live business, getting quality shows, figuring out ways to 
just continue to bring bodies to the door. Now, you've got a great sampling from around the country coming out of COVID from Philly, Brooklyn, Nashville, Vegas, the cap as well. How are you seeing ticket sales in different markets? Are they consistent across the country or is one part of the country stronger than another at a different time? I mean, it seems like COVID is over in Nashville and has been for quite a while. I think the good news is we opened up Nashville in the summer. We weren't planning on being open, so we sort of backfilled the summer. We are, as many venues around the country were, we are sort of gearing up to open up after Labor Day, and we had packed calendars from new shows as well as two rounds worth of rollover shows from previous false starts. And then Delta hit right before we opened up all the other rooms after Labor Day. So there's some PTSD there. I think we settled into the fall and they got into a good groove in all the markets, kind of only to have Omicron sort of give us one more shot to the jaw in January. I mean, we actually ended up closing down for a couple of weeks in all the markets. I think the positive coming out of Omicron that whether it was cultural or societally speaking, science be damned. I think this pandemic became endemic in that we were not going to shut down again. People were just, you know what, we're going to live with this illness. And, you know, more people were vaccinated, more people had gotten the disease and had gained immunity in some way or another. And, and yeah, I feel like we're in that place now. People are still getting sick and still having issues. But for the most part, I think the country is in the place where we're living with it. You know, the one thing I will say that it seems that some of the artists that have toured a lot over the years, that people are are, are sort of the comfort blanket, aren't necessarily the shows that are thriving right now. People are more geared towards seeing new things, new music, first time shows, foreign artists, things that they didn't have the opportunity to experience for a couple of years in many cases. A lot of European and Australian artists are now just getting their first dip into North America. So in the middle of everything going on here in Nashville, too, you've got a brand new site opening up in Fishtown in Philly as well, too. And I think these projects have to have a timeline somewhere along the way, whether where they're overlapping from planning and development to construction to opening. Uh, it seems like as one chapter is kind of closing for Peter and Charlie, another one is, is opening in, in Philadelphia. The model seems like it's continuing to work on that level as well, too, with the, the opening in Fishtown as well, too. How much of the story in the, in the Northeast and with Brooklyn Bowl has kind of carried through the development of these new places? And how are you going about identifying what markets are potential places for a brand like Brooklyn Bowl? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of synergy, if for no other reason, the proximity of of Philadelphia and New York. We're doing, we're working a lot. Uh, we actually have a lot of the same team booking both markets, even Friday, Saturday night, back-to-back shows in the two markets. Philly and New York are definitely distinctly different markets. And at the same time, you know, the bowl in Philly is uniquely positioned in its place, you know, next to the foundry and next to the Fillmore. It's become a little bit of an entertainment block there. And I think that it's only going to get stronger. Fishtown is sort of has a lot of parallels to Williamsburg 10, 12 years ago. The energy that we sort of saw peaking in Williamsburg in you know the last five years is is gonna is just starting to to ramp up in Philadelphia. So, you know, I think there's a couple other markets on the East Coast that would help us complete a little bit of a, a circuit there that we're certainly interested in and ultimately trying to figure out a way to even be able to connect the dots with Nashville here in the Midwest. And so we're just being deliberate about trying to find markets that have a hole for our 12 
1500 cap is, is the sweet spot for our brand and for our model. It's good for us to be able to do lots of shows. It's a great concept for underplays. It's also a good concept for doing 30, 40% of a room where people are coming in and spending a long night there, eating, drinking, bowling, and you know, even taking in a couple of our shows in one night. I got to imagine staffing has to be something of an issue with dividing some of your staff into these new markets, because obviously you're moving some of your ringers into Philly and Nashville. So now that you've got four venues working simultaneously and the industry has been hit with people leaving, that has to have been a challenge coming out of COVID. Yeah, I mean, we have a core team of big, low Brooklyn Bowl people that work on development, finance, legal, HR. We have a lot of communication between our general managers, obviously booking. There's a lot of communication, but much like the service industry, there have been some challenges as far as getting enough bodies in the restaurant, servers on the floor, security, but we've managed to, we haven't had any crises just yet. It was a little touch and go in the beginning, but we've actually had some people that sort of moved on during the pandemic that have decided to come back and work at the bowls in different departments. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, wages are up, which is a good thing for the workers, but it's definitely increased our challenges as far as coming out of this hole, which, you know, not having revenue for a year and a half is not a great business model. And so artists are feeling the pinch. Obviously, the venues and the promoters are coming out and sort of clawing back. There's a lot of passion in the people that work in these venues. People aren't doing it necessarily to get rich. We've seen a lot of people come through our venues and go on to do great things. It's pretty exciting being around creative people and, and just seeing smiles on people's faces every night in the room. I think that is priceless. Is there anything that is on the horizon for Brooklyn Bowl that you're particularly excited about? New places you're scouting, new shows you're bringing in, new talent that you brought into your roster, people that you're working with, a staff and team included. What's getting you excited these days? We're working on a couple residency type engagements with artists in Vegas. Can't say anything just yet about it, but I think people are going to be really excited by it. We're still back to the fundamentals that we were before the pandemic, just trying to get the best deals we can, trying to run the venues as efficiently as we can, trying to hire the best people that we can. With all the volume that's out there, just try to be as discriminating as you can and getting the right shows. The nice thing about having a room like Nashville is there's no shortage of avails. At the same time, it gives you the luxury of really trying to steer the right shows into the room. Every market that we have is, is different. Physically, the rooms are slightly different. There's different capacities. We have nuanced styles in each of the markets. So, you know, it's exciting to just sort of mix and match those things. I mean, ultimately, we'd like to be able to go into new markets where, where the bowl fills a void. And we, we have the same problem of Nashville of abundance of avails. Just lots of great artists coming through. So what would you say that you've learned as the bowl coming out of COVID? What are the, some of the things that may have made you stronger and made you guys be able to weather the storm? Well, certainly it was helpful to have a partner like Live Nation to help us pay the rent. You know, so we're thankful that that partnership was forged. There would have been an opportunity maybe for us to, to pull in some save our stages cash. But like I said before, really what we learned is the fundamentals haven't changed. And that is you just have to come in every day and pay attention, try to avoid bad habits. We make a point in all our rooms of having at least one weekly meeting with all the core staff. We expect really detailed note taking from our show reports so that we can really look back on a daily, weekly basis at what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And, you know, we're still coming out of a pandemic. It's sometimes you just pinch yourself that it's only been, it hasn't even been a year since we started doing shows again. 
yeah, I just think the fundamentals of really just trying to make good deals and service the artist's needs, because at the end of the day, these relationships we have are the reasons we have great shows in the room. We continue to treat our, our fans and our artists like house guests. I think a lot of things fall into place. Well, you're certainly doing an amazing job and the growth is incredible. Thrilled that you guys are on the other side of this as the industry comes back to live entertainment. And can't thank you enough, KP, for joining us here as an industry look at the last year coming out of COVID. Thanks, guys. KP, laying a little knowledge out here on Promoter 101. Industry Affirmations of the Return to Live Music. Hey everybody, Ted Heinig with C3 and Live Nation. I'm super grateful just to have shows back. And I really, really missed bringing artists and audience together and the feeling of community and the feeling that you can only get at a live show when everybody's just having a great experience together. And the first time it happened, we did Jason Aldean on the Bonnaroo site. And I got a little emotional just because it was such a such a special thing and something that I'd missed for, you know, 15 months where we're all sitting on the sidelines and just grateful to be back. Lori Jacoby at Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. For me, it's seeing the interaction between the artists and the audience again and that magical combination that just can't be replicated by doing something via Zoom. It really is like the epitome of what we're all in the business about is just to witness that end result of working on something so hard and then seeing it all come to fruition and then seeing the audience give back to the performer and vice versa. And then of course, I'm always happy to talk about merch rates and why somebody wants a better rate. Jim Rungi, tour manager currently with Demi Lovato. The happiest thing is the relationships that I have with people on the road. There's nothing, there's nothing like those relationships that you have on the road with people when you living in a bus with them and the old friends that you come across across daily and, and, and just kindling those relationships. But I think being on the road and, and being in those cities and being able to and working together, I think is the things that I'm I'm most thankful for. I'm Gary Witt. I'm the CEO of the Paps Theater Group in Milwaukee. We're most grateful and most thankful for our team. Uh, they stuck with us during a, a long time and a long, very uh, scary 18 months. As an independent business, we obviously didn't have a large corporation like uh, backing or guarantees for people to rely on. So for us, the reward is that we've returned smarter, stronger, and better organized, and we're more capable of managing the workload. Uh, we used to burn people out. So thanks to that, we're growing. We've added the Miller High Life Theater, a 4,000 cap room, a new private events building that we've just purchased, and that gives us seven venues in Milwaukee. And we're not done yet. Quote of the week, I envy us, David St. Hubbins of This Is Spinal Tap. I envy us, Luke. I envy us. Love it. All right, for this very special episode, we got the goods. We got the guy who literally wrote the book on the music industry. Donald Passman is the author of All You Need to Know About the Music Business. It's considered canon when it comes down to music business education. He's also a practicing attorney and partner at Gang Tire Roman and Brown, sitting down with us to talk about his book, the influence of his book on this business, and his work as an attorney to some of the biggest stars in the business. 
we've got the guy that literally wrote the book on the music industry, All You Need to Know About the Music Business, which is now on the 11th edition. A long-awaited welcome to Promoter 101. Donald Passman, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Dan, thanks for asking. Let's start with a little bit of your history. Can you start with maybe your education and how you found your way to the music business law world? Sure. I always wanted to be a lawyer back when I was a little kid and my friends wanted to be astronauts and policemen and I always wanted to be a lawyer. But it was because my dad's a lawyer and it seemed like the right thing to do. And I like to argue and I like logic and all those kind of things kind of worked for me. So I grew up around the music business. My stepfather was a disc jockey. We moved to Los Angeles when I was 12 because he got a job there from Dallas. And I always found fascinating. I liked music. I always played music since I was a kid. Time I got to college, I formed a band and played in the band. So I always loved being around music, listening to music, but I didn't know that I could have a career with it because it was becoming clear based on my talent that wasn't going to happen. So I went to Harvard Law School. I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer and I actually liked tax, strange as that sounds. But when I was looking at summer clerkship jobs, one of the firms at entertainment law, and I thought, oh, what's that? I didn't know there was such a thing. And I realized I could put together two things that I really loved. And I got really excited. And so that's how I decided to go into the entertainment law business. Harvard Law School. So it's pretty real. Where did you do your undergrad? University of Texas in Austin. You go from University of Texas, then you go to Harvard Law, coming out of that working in the music industry. How long was it before you wound up with real clients in the industry? And I'm I'm not asking for names, just (laughs) people doing real business. Yeah, longer than I would have liked. When I started practicing, my firm was representing almost exclusively the company side of things. We represented a number of record labels, publishing companies, film companies, in their music work. And that was an enormously good education because I was understanding, A, how to draft contracts because the companies draft them, and B, how to negotiate because I was dealing with all the talent lawyers in town. And what they would do was farm out their really big deals to us. So I was getting this this incredible education about what high-end, complicated record deals and publishing deals look like. But my heart was always on the talent side. So I decided I wanted to build a talent practice. And I set out to do it starting pretty much at ground zero, other than that I had contacts through the labels. So it took a long time, longer than I would have liked to have had it happen. But I was the tortoise in the race, and I just kept plugging and kept going and eventually you know, met people and then met bigger artists and made relationships with young people who grew up with me. And as they got more important, uh, we knew each other and were able to send business back and forth. And that's how I built it. Okay. And you're still practicing currently? Oh, yeah. Full time. Earlier than I've ever been, actually. And how long have you been practicing since you passed Uh, the bar? Oh, over 40 years. 40 years in the music industry as a music professional and an attorney. That's some serious background going into the book. Now, let's talk about the author side. What brought you to want to write a book about the industry? How I originally got into it is that I took a class at USC Law School, which was their continuing education program on the music business. And I got really excited. That's what sort of kicked me over. I could be doing this and really having fun. And then years later, I taught the same class. And I realized after about three years of teaching it that my class notes were the outline for a book. And I'd always wanted to write a book. And there was no easy to read book on the music business. The only thing around was something called This Business in Music, which isn't around anymore. And it was really difficult to read. 
And I realize musicians don't like to read, uh, understandably. They're oriented to their ears, number one. And number two, they, they want to spend their time being creative. So they need stuff broken down in a very simple, easy to read way. And so, and that's something that comes easy to me. If I understand a complicated concept, I can explain it in simple terms. It's just something I've always been able to do. And I realized that's what I could do with a book. So I uh, grabbed a dictaphone, I sat down, I started talking, and uh, about a year and a half later, I had the book. Let me just say, first of all, it's got a 4.8 ratings out of five possible on Amazon, which is ridiculously high for any resource guide. That's really big digs. I listen to it as an audiobook. It's available both as an audiobook and in print form. Instead of a book, it really is more of a resource guide on the industry. You write it in a way where you can jump around from chapters and you actually give directions. If you're doing this in the music industry, you should skip ahead to this. Or if you're looking to do this, fast track to this or continue to listen if you were looking for this, which I find incredibly helpful. But I found it very fascinating because I didn't skip around at all. I listened to the entire audiobook from start to finish. There was so much about the industry that's on the opposite side of the live side that I didn't really know about because I don't really deal with the recording side and the process of cutting deals, labels and streaming. And not only did I learn a lot about how that side of the business works that I was kind of foggy on, but I also learned quite a bit about some of the business from the live side that I've actually never encompassed. So it was kind of interesting to hear some of the history and why some of those things exist and how they kind of came to be. So your knowledge on the industry was very broad because you're covering every part of the business in that resource guide. And I got to imagine some of that is far beyond stuff that you had to do as a lawyer. You probably had to do quite a bit of research on some of the fields that didn't pop up automatically in your normal day-to-day business. Oh, well, thanks, Dan, for the nice words. Yeah, it's true. When I wrote All You Need to Know About the Music Business, as much as I had a lot of knowledge, I had to do a lot of research because there are parts of the business I don't deal with normally, and I want to make sure I'm writing it as accurately as possible. It often takes me more time to do the research than it does to write the book because the writing is the part I enjoy. Doing the research can be tough. It, It takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. And it also forces me to stay current because I've now got to go out and learn things that I wouldn't necessarily come across in my day-to-day practice. What I also found was really interesting, and I think a lot of musicians will love this, especially when you're reading a book. Resource books are kind of dry in general, but you brought your own humor to it instead of it just being a dry resource book that you might have at a college. You've got some jokes that are pretty fitting towards the chapters that you're in. So you get these random chuckles that you weren't expecting, which is a fun bonus. It's just like these little Easter eggs hidden in there. Well, thanks. Somewhat to my surprise, the book actually is a textbook in colleges and law schools across the country. I only know that anecdotally. Interestingly, the publisher, when they sell it wholesale, doesn't know exactly who it's going to, but I know from various people I hear from that they've used it as a text, which uh, I didn't anticipate because I was really reading it for people that want to get into the business and just don't know how to get started and that wanted to have an easy, you know, read, overview, good way to get into it and just understand the basics because several generations of artists really didn't understand the business and got pretty badly taken advantage of. So not that there are people out there that still take advantage of artists, but at least now you can understand what they're doing to you. There seems to be an ongoing repeating theme throughout the course of the text. And that is no matter who you're dealing with, even if it's just bandmates or if it's just a a friend that owns a label, whatever it is, have something in writing. 
make sure that both sides agree on the same thing somewhere. It seems to continually pop up throughout the course of the book. Is that just general knowledge or is that the lawyer coming out from you or is that something you've just seen time and time again when there isn't a deal in writing? Oh, it's totally the lawyer coming out of me. Uh, just because I see so many situations where people have a handshake and have very different understandings of what they have agreed to, or they haven't even thought about it at all. They just say, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And they start recording and, and they don't sort out who's going to control the recording, for example, or any of those kind of things. The, the more specific you can get at the early stages, particularly, the better off you're going to be. So if you're in a garage band that's just jamming for fun, and you're starting to play some gigs that you're actually starting to see thousand dollars or better coming in on a gig. Is that a point where you should have a basic understanding of the partnership of the band broken down already in writing? You know, probably not. If you're a garage band, just doing a few gigs here and there. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely better, but no, people, most people can't afford to really do that. It's when you start getting into record deals, publishing deals, your music starts getting exploited commercially. That's when you really got to nail things down. So when there's an actual product that exists in the zeitgeist, that can be your licensed. Yeah, either that or either it exists or you're in, uh, making a deal to create product and it hasn't yet been done. It's, but when you get to the stage of signing a record deal or a publishing deal, uh, or the rights to your songwriting as opposed to your rights of your singing or recording, when you get to that stage, you really should have an understanding if you're working with someone else. Now, the book covers a lot. It gives that understanding that if you are doing it yourself without a manager, without an agent, and you're trying to make it in the industry, here's what you need to know. And it's got this very DIY, young artist point of view there. And at the same time, I think there's something that every industry veteran is going to pick up when they listen back to it and go, oh, that makes sense. I actually learned quite a bit about how the tour deals work by listening to the book. I knew how the deals work, but some of the history of how they came to it, I found fascinating. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, look, I, I think the history of the music business is a fascinating one, just seeing how the power shift has worked over the years between the labels and the artists. And we, we're kind of in an unprecedented time in the sense that historically, the labels had a barrier to entry that if you wanted to be in the mainstream music business, you pretty much had to go through them. Uh, because in the days of physical product, it's really expensive to manufacture and ship records. And more importantly, they had relationships with retailers. So even if you got in the stores, it might be stuck in the back, not up front. Maybe they pay you, maybe they don't. Whereas the labels, they could cut off their product if they don't pay them. So there was a massive barrier to entry, none of which exists anymore. Uh, now anybody can get their music up for uh, you know a relatively small amount of money through, uh, uh, for example, TuneCore. And suddenly you're on all the streaming services. But the problem is, Everybody can do that. So there's tens of millions of pieces of product that's out there and available, but how's anybody going to find yours? And the role of the label has morphed into how do you take someone and elevate them above the crowd? And interestingly, I find these days that the labels want someone who's already got a buzz going. In other words, they want you to get out there. They want to see social media numbers. They want to see people responding, whether it's on TikTok or SoundCloud, less important these days, but that you're getting action somewhere. People are starting to react to your music and get a following. Then, of course, they all jump on it and, and move it. And their job then is to take you to the highest level you can go to. Looking at the book, you can jump around all over the place, which I think is great because you can really just focus in on what you want to learn about. And you know, some of the things are how to pick your team, your attorney, your agent, your business manager, your personal manager. And you explain the difference between these people, which I think is great because I don't think a lot of people know the difference between a business manager and a personal manager. 
And in a lot of cases, I don't think people know when they need an attorney and when they don't, because it can get very expensive the second you start hiring somebody that's an attorney that's not on the team per se, that isn't interested in being a long-term partner that's just paying for your contract hours. Yes, it can get expensive. But you know, as you begin to have some success, or as I say, if you begin to enter into any kind of a third-party contract, you should have a lawyer look at it. It's the only way to protect yourself. Yeah, it's it's interesting on all of the pieces. And most of those you're just doing for yourself at the beginning. Yes. Most artists these days have to start it on their own. The, the, the days of taking an unknown, uh, you know, obscure tape of somebody and then spending three albums developing them and helping them hone into the, an artist, uh, those are pretty well long gone. Uh, now it's about, you know, what kind of buzz do you have on your own and uh, how far can we take it? One of the things that I appreciated most and I found most interesting was the record deals. You go very deep into all of the different possibilities of combinations of record deals, the major deals, the the recoups, the indies, how it all works, all the deal points, what needs to be worked out in advance. I found it really fascinating how you got really into the bolts of the record deals because I could feel like that's why a lot of the indie artists would pick up the book in the first place and young managers is trying to understand how to get in business with record labels. Yeah. Well, again, my philosophy is pretty simple. The better educated you are, the better care you can you can take of yourself because nobody will take as good a care of your business as you will. And you also get into touring and you get into merchandising, you get into the motion picture soundtrack stuff, and you get pretty deep into a lot of the different divisions of the industry. So I found, you know, how to jump into the royalties and all of that and some of the really how everything fluctuates and is continually changing on some of those deals was one of the better, more concise points of like, no matter what it is, when you're listening to this versus when I wrote it, like things have changed already because that's how quick this industry changes, which I thought was super fascinating. You just you need to have someone that's really tuned in with exactly the right moment of what's going on right now and what the standard is in the industry. Yeah, it's true. It changes quite a bit over time. You know, deals are getting bigger now that the record companies are flush again. They were much tougher and much thinner in the days when the companies were sinking, but they're back. Um, 2021 was, I think, the largest year in history for recorded music. Uh, That's without adjusting the dollars for inflation. But even so, it was a huge year and the growth in streaming is driving it. Right. So there's 11 editions of all you need to know about the music business. You're constantly updating, keeping it current. How much has changed between the 10th and 11th edition of this thing? How how much has to change before you decide, okay, it's time to do another update? The change from the 10th to the 11th was the most radical change in the history of the book because we went from a ecosystem that was based on selling something to an ecosystem that's based on how many listeners can you get. And it's a completely different business model in ways that are not so obvious. So if you want, I can take a couple of minutes and explain why that's so significant. I would love that. Okay. All right. So going back to the beginning of the music business, back when it was first monetized by things like piano rolls and then wax cylinders, it was selling something was a way to get money for music. And once somebody bought it, whether they listened to it once or a thousand times didn't matter to either the record company or the artist. They only got the money when they bought it. And so that's how the system worked. Today. It matters very much how much listens you get. The way that the streaming ecosystem works is that the streaming company takes all of their money, that subscription money, advertising money, and they put it in a pot. At the end, every month, at the end of the month, they got X dollars, right? Then they divide up that X dollars 
by the number of plays that happen. So if there were a million plays and you had 100,000 of them, you'd get 10% of the pot, you meaning the record label in this case, unless the artist is doing it direct, right? So if there's a million dollars in the pot, it's obviously much, much more than that. There was a million dollars in the pot and you had 10%, you'd get $100,000, okay? Now, that doesn't sound so radical until you think about the following. In the past, when there were physical sales, it didn't matter how many albums I sold. It had nothing to do with how many albums you could sell. If anything, if you have a big hit record and people, your fans come to the store, they have a better chance of buying mine because they're already in the store. So a, a, good, a hit record could be good for everybody. Today, every play that I, every listen that I get means one less listen for you. So there's a finite amount of money every month, X dollars, which was not true in the days with physical because it could be infinite. However many albums were selling that month, it could be a huge amount of money. Now it's going to be a set amount of money. And the question is, who gets what piece of it? So all of a sudden now, we're competing with each other for a share of this finite pie. And that's never existed before. Secondly, the way that records were marketed before, particularly through radio, which is becoming less and less meaningful, is now through the streaming services. So how do you get people to listen to it? How do you get people to put it on their playlist so they keep listening to it after it's no longer a hit? That's the real key to doing it, to having a long-term uh, role with it, is the more playlists you're on, the more people listen to your music over time, the more money you're going to make. So it's, it's a completely different way of marketing, a completely different economics and it's fascinating how much has changed. Now, in your belief, do you need a manager to do all of this for you? Or is this something if you read the book and you take the time, you can find your way through it and do it for yourself? Well, let me answer it this way. Even LeBron James needs a coach. And the reason is, is that he's in the middle of the game and the coach is on the sideline looking at the big picture. Coach is objective. The coach isn't emotional. And also LeBron James's time, I mean, maybe he's a bad example because he's a smart business guy, is, is not necessarily best spent on managing his career. It's best spent on being on doing what he does best, which is being, you know, a personality, celebrity, and so forth. Um, but the uh, certainly there are artists capable of managing themselves. Most of them don't have the business interest, even if they had the skill for it. And most of them would not be the best use of their time to be spending it on the business. They should be spending it on creative things and, and out earning money. So I think it's really important to have someone who's objective in your life, somebody who can be a buffer to the world and deliver the bad news that you made the decision, but you don't want to be blamed for. And uh, just generally filter what comes through, because when you're really successful, tons of things pour through and most of it is not worth your time. So you need somebody to filter it. Would you say there's any one thing that a, a musician needs to know when they're trying to take go from it being a hobby to being a career that they need to get in line and they need to educate themselves on? Well, I think being a success in your career, whether it's music or anything else, is based on your passion. There are moderately talented people that we could both name who have really big careers, and there are extremely talented people that have mediocre or no careers. And the difference between them is their drive and their passion. And the people that are successful are the ones that want it at any price, that'll do whatever it takes, that don't get discouraged by the no's and the hard docs, and they just get up and keep moving. And those are the ones both in every aspect of life, in my experience, are the most successful. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for making time and talking to us today. I listened to the book from start to finish. I didn't jump ahead anytime you suggested it. 
All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald Passman. The 11th edition's out. It's available on Amazon. You can get it for Kindle, audiobook, hardcover, paperback, and even on audio CD. I couldn't be more excited that we finally got time to talk to you about your book. I loved it and I learned a ton about the industry. Thank you so very much for finding time and talking to us on Promoter 101. Donald Passman. Well, thanks, Dan, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The Donald, finally, finally, right fucking here on Promoter 101. Luke, we got it. We got the guy that wrote the book. Jason Bernstein, AEG Presents. Being able to reunite with my friends and, you know, colleagues at a festival or a show feels like the greatest reunion ever. We've got jobs, we're healthy, and, you know, we got a bonus episode of Promoter 101, so life is good. Hi, this is Kevin Lyman I'm from the KL Group and the University of Southern California. Well, I'm more, most grateful for that all my friends are back to work, ultimately. It's not only a job, but it's a family, and so many of them didn't see each other, so it was great being able to hang out at Coachella and, and seeing them all back together. Aaron Zimmerman, the Vice President of the Tobin Center for the Performing Arts in San Antonio, Texas. I am most grateful for the smiling faces that I see walking into the building every day. And it's not just the patrons, but it's the security, it's the front of house, it's the ticket takers, it's the box office personnel, and everybody being back in full force and high-fiving and giving each other pounds really warms my heart that everyone feels like they're coming back and able to be together as a family again. And I think that's what I'm most grateful for. I'm Heath Bomar with Reliant Talent Agency. I'm so thankful that my bands get to work again, and so do me and you. Yes, I am Nick Storch, and I work for Artist Group International. I am just grateful to get back to seeing bands live and seeing all the great friends that we have in this business, in, their, in the flesh, and all the touring people, and yeah, the human element of all of this, of being in the same room and getting to experience what we all work on all day. I'm Nick Light. I work at RCA Records. I'm just excited to, to be producing shows again, to be sharing the live experience with people. I mean, I've always felt listening to music is solitary. You do that on earphones in your car. You do that by yourself. But the shared music experience is the greatest thing in the world. That's time spent with friends, sweating in a hot club, and just enjoying live music with your friends. It's the greatest thing in the world. This is Scott Leslie from FPC Live. I'm grateful for the sound of the audience roaring when the lights go down. I'm Dave Brooks with Billboard Magazine. I'm happy to be back in some of LA's great rooms, like the Troubadour and the Echo, the Regent Theater, the Hollywood Palladium, the Wiltern, the El Rey Theater, the Novo, and the Henry Fonda. These days, I arrive a little bit later, and I leave a little bit earlier, but I miss these old haunts so much, and I'm so happy to be back inside these cultural gyms. There's nothing like a packed venue for a concert. Patty Ann Tarleton, and I work for Ticketmaster. I'm so grateful for the energy that you get off the crowd when the lights go down. There's just no other, uh, just no other way to, to, to get that energy. And it certainly wasn't in my basement for the last two years. I work at First Avenue, Palace Theater, et cetera. And my name is Nate Kranz. Could I do that backwards? I think the best part about uh, live music coming back after the pandemic is getting to be in the room and experiencing that with the bands and your friends and the entire audience, just that, moment of exhilaration and joy that everybody shares when the band walks out on stage and you're in a room with like-minded people as opposed to during the pandemic even if we had a show like a live stream it just wasn't the same standing in an empty room 
Hey guys, this is your captain speaking, and uh, I reckon it's about time we land this plane. That's it, everybody. This very special Memorial Day weekend reunion special has come to an end. It was wonderful for Dan, Connor, and I to get back together and sit down with some amazing guests this week. A big thank you, of course, to the man who wrote the book of the business, Mr. Donald S. Passman, joining us. And, of course, all of our other amazing guests from Paladin Artists, Steve Martin, Andy Summers, Wayne Forte, Kirk Peterson from Brooklyn Bull, and Ben Pikowski from Superfly. Thank you all for making time. And thank you for listening today. We really appreciate you coming out to, to support Reunion here. We hope that these podcasts and these drops we've been doing sporadically have been helping you and connecting with you and learning along with you in this crazy business that we work in. If you like what you heard, drop us a line. You can hit us at Steiny at Promoter101.net. If you just want to catch up, we're here to hear from you. Well, that will do it for the Promoter 101 Reunion Pop-Up Special. We want to thank all of our listeners and just wish all of you a very happy summer and Memorial Day weekend. And Dan, now that shows are back, we can wish everybody sold out shows for the months to come. You know, we could have just done a bloopers episode just based on us being so rusty and fucking this one up, Luke. But for everyone out there, cheers. Call your mother. Ba 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 ba